0: So today we're going to be in uh, Jeremiah, and before before DJ gets up here, we're going to sing a few songs, but I wanted to read this just to kind of prepare our hearts uh, for the rest of the service. Um, So it's Jeremiah uh, 31, uh, 31 through I think 37. Behold, the days are coming, declared the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, Who gives the sun, by light, sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night? Who stirs up the seas so that its waves roar? The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord. If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. As I was reading that last part, I was just struck by the the greatness of God in creation and how in the last hundred years we've had so many discoveries and I'm sure we're just scratching the surface. I'd I'd love to read two chapters in Job as well because it's awesome when God responds to Job but I don't have enough time for that because it's pretty long but I encourage you to go read that. It's just an awesome visual picture of the creation. Um... So we're going to we're going to sing a few songs and the last one kind of has that theme in it and at the end of it what we're going to do DJ is going to dismiss the kids and we're just going to start next week's lent by taking a moment of silence we're going to do 20 minutes uh, maybe maybe 1 or 2 minutes So I just encourage you to you know after that time just maybe close your eyes sit stand whatever you want to do and just be silent be silent and just uh, appreciate God and reflect on whatever whatever's going on in your heart.
1: Our heavenly father, we quiet our hearts before you. As David prays in the Psalms, like a newborn child, like like a newly weaned child in the arms of his mother, I have quieted my heart before the Lord. As we were sitting in quiet, I heard in my, my heart the words that Elijah prayed on Mount Carmel, O Lord God of our fathers, this day. Let it be known that you are turning our hearts back to you. Father, turn our hearts back to you. Away from the fears that dominate them, away from materialism and consumerism, away from our anxieties. Turn our hearts back to You, God. Father, prepare our hearts for Your Word this morning, for the message. God, with humility I ask that um, as I teach this morning that there would be no idle word. There would be joy and laughter and, and learning Uh, but nothing unnecessary, God. We pray that Your Spirit would guide each one of us into a deeper knowledge, a deeper understanding, and a deeper experience of Jesus Christ. Thank You for Your Word, God. Thank You for blessing us with Your Son. Thank You for protecting and inscribing and passing down through generations this, the gift of the Scriptures where we can learn about You and steady Your ways, God. Apply them to our hearts and our minds. May we think like You. May we feel like You. May we live like You. We pray this and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, it has been a little bit since I have preached on a Sunday morning, and that was not intentional. Um, We had scheduled uh, Danny Conicelli, which he uh, preached three weeks ago, on Psalm chapter 2, and then I was going to speak, but then I heard Josh Bitework was going to be in town, and I couldn't pass up that opportunity, so last minute I asked Josh if he uh, would fill in, and if if you weren't here for that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. It was so good to have Josh with us. Um, And he he shared a message. And then last week, uh, Josh Hostetter let us. So that's much longer than I typically have off. So you're in for it today. You know, like at the end of winter when your kids have been stuck in the house all winter and they just can't wait to get outside. That's what I feel like this morning. It's going to be like drinking from a fire hose. Are you ready? I hope you're thirsty. We're going to cover a lot of stuff. That's what I do. All right, this morning we are looking at Jesus and the prophets and specifically the new covenant which Tim read for us from Jeremiah 31 earlier in our service. You know when you walk into a mall, I took Coach, my oldest son, to a birthday party um, a couple weeks ago and it was at the mall in Exton. Anybody ever been to the mall in Exton? I'd never been there before. It was my first time being in that mall, not being from this area. And so we walked in and uh, the birthday party was in the arcade, really cool arcade that they have there. Um, Really easy to spend way too much money in that arcade, so I don't suggest going or taking a eight-year-old boy to that arcade. Um, So we walk in the mall, and I walked through the food court entrance, and uh, I have no idea where I am, and I have no idea where the arcade is, so what did I do? I ate food! (laughs) No, I looked at the map, right? I stopped and I looked at the map and the directory and it said, You are here. And then I oriented myself based on where I was and where I wanted to go. We need a You Are Here moment, okay? Because it's been a while uh, since I've been up here. It's been a while since I was kind of driving home the, the theme of where we're at in the scriptures and where we're headed. So, just for a few minutes, um, we're going to do You Are Here. Look at your neighbor and say, You are here. You're here. And if you're not, Wake up! All right, You Are Here. We have been in a series called Living in His Story. And the idea is right now we are going through various genres in the Old Testament and seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Right now, um, it's really easy in our culture to reject the Hebrew Scriptures, to reject the Old Testament, and just focus on the New Testament. Because if most of us are honest, first of all, the Old Testament is really hard to understand. And secondly, there's a lot in there that would make us uncomfortable if we're being honest. Like when I read a passage where God seems to condone uh, genocide or uh, the war bride texts where God says, when you go to war and if you see a woman, you can take her for your own. That, like, that makes me a little uncomfortable. And I'm just like, it's not helpful to gloss over that and say, Like, it's no big deal. No, we have to wrestle through this stuff. We have to be honest. And so part of the point of this series is to look at the different genres in the Old Testament and see how does Jesus, how does this point towards Jesus? Because I believe with all my heart, and I'm quoting here from the Bible Project, that all of scriptures are a unified story that culminate in Jesus Christ. And so we need to look at the different things and not avoid the hard parts and see how is this revealing and unfolding and telling the story of Jesus. So that's what this series is all about. The stories we tell shape the way we see the world. This is so true. The story that you believe directly shapes the way that you live out your life. If you believe that you're a victim, guess how you're going to live your life? As a victim. If you believe that you are not valuable and not loved, how are you going to live your life? You're going to live it as a doormat. If you believe that the universe revolves around you and you're at the very center of it, how are you going to live your life? Well, you're going to be sorely disappointed, first of all. But you're going to live your life as if you're the center of the universe, and everyone and everything revolves around you. The story that we believe shapes the way that we live every single day. I, uh, several weeks ago, I read this quote from Scott McKnight in this fantastic book that I just read. He released it recently called Pastor Paul. It's reflections on the min- ministry of uh, Paul through the lens of a pastor. And he says this, we are born storytellers. And consciously or not, we all indwell a story. We're living out the story that we're telling ourselves. We make sense of life with a story. We tell ourselves. And when something doesn't fit, a tragedy, a death, a failed marriage, a broken career, we find a story that turns what doesn't fit into something that does fit. Pastors are notorious for this. So are you. We all do this. But, you know, if you're in a church that's shrinking in size, the story will be God is weeding us down to get down to the core so we can get back to the basic things. Or if you're in a church that then suddenly starts to experience growth, the story is going to flip and it's going to be God is blessing us and this is how he's blessing us with the growth. Whatever we're living out, we're always searching for a story to make sense of it, to make it fit, to make it work. So we got to be careful about the stories that we're believing and the stories that we're indwelling. We also love to read stories, McKnight says, and some enter the world of fiction to escape the dominant ideological narratives of our day that is to find a better world to indwell. I have done that over and over again in my life. The times where I feel the loneliest, the times where I feel the most isolated is when I'm the most drawn to fiction. Speaking to my soul, there's something better on the other side. There's something more hopeful. There's a story that I can be part of. This is why we love the Lord of the Rings, or we love Narnia, or we love whatever, whatever your favorite story is, the Wing Feather saga. We love these stories because they offer and show us a glimpse of the world as it's meant to be, or the world as we hope it would be, or our part in it, that our lives would matter. If you're not part of a story, then how can you believe that your life even has value or meaning? God is a storyteller is a storytelling God. The scriptures arrive to us in the form not of a list of do's and don'ts, but in the form of a story. And if God entrusts all of salvific history into a text that's a story, what should that reveal to us about the importance of knowing that story, and believing it, and dwelling it, and walking it out, which is why we're doing this story, or this series. So living in his story. In Christ, our stories have been woven into the fabric of his story. God's making a magnificent tapestry, and he's taking your life, which is a single thread in it, and he's weaving it into the full tapestry. Your story is no longer your own. In Christ, like the lives of those we read about in the scriptures, our lives collectively in Christ, are part of the grander, all-encompassing story of God. We are not a people who are without hope. We are not a people without meaning or purpose because we are part of the story that Jesus is telling the world. It is the story of his son, Jesus Christ, that is being told in our daily lives. So it matters what we do and how we live. Because if you go to your work... And you're a jerk, but you're supposed to be representing Christ. What is that telling the world about Jesus? What is that telling the world about our Savior? How we live matters. We are the living witnesses of Jesus Christ and his power on earth. Praise God. His story gives you meaning and purpose. So live in it. So this is where we've been. Jesus. We started Jesus in Genesis. We spent several weeks looking at Jesus in Genesis 1 to 3. And then several more weeks looking at Jesus in the Torah. Then we spent several weeks of looking at Jesus in the Psalms. I taught from Psalm chapter 22. And then Danny taught from Psalm chapter 2. And then uh, last week we started our emphasis of Jesus in the prophets, starting in Isaiah, which Josh Hostetter led us in. And today I will continue that by looking at the prophet Jeremiah. You are here. Look at your neighbor and say, you are here. All right, that's where we're at. This morning, all right, so now we've oriented ourselves. Do you feel oriented? Do you feel like you know where you're at? Okay, this is where we're headed. The Hebrew scriptures are filled with Covenants. The Lord established covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. And we could do a whole bunch of teaching on each of these covenants. These are the big four covenants in the Old Testament. Noah after the flood. Abraham when God calls him. Moses after the people of Israel leave Egypt and go to Mount Sinai. We're going to be looking at that one a little bit more later. And David where God promises that someone, one of his uh, sons will always sit on the throne forever. And who is that? Jesus, all right, each of these covenants pointed forward to a coming covenant that was only foreshadowed by these first covenants. The prophet Jeremiah called this the new covenant. So this is a phrase that he coins in his ministry, where he says God is going to establish a new covenant. This week, we're looking at the promise of the new covenant and its fulfillment through the life, teaching, and ministry of Christ. All right, anybody know who this is? Or what this is? Wait, wait, say it loud. Cheaters! Cheaters! Anybody know why this is a picture of cheaters? All right, I'm a big baseball fan, so I'm going to take a minute here. This is the 2017 Houston Astros. Fantastic team. They won a ton of games. I forget how many games they won that year. Over 100, I believe. They tore through the playoffs, and for the first time in their franchise history, they won the World Series. That's Jose Altuve. Uh, holding the, uh, the Commissioner's Trophy, the Championship Trophy. All right. But this is a picture of a bunch of cheaters. Because what happened after they won the World Series? Anybody know? Yeah. They were stealing the signs of the opposing pitchers with cameras and then relaying those signs to the batters using a bat on a trash can in the dugout. So... Pitching, if you, know, if you don't know baseball, pitching, hitting a baseball is the hardest thing to do in all of sports. Hitting a, hitting a baseball is the most difficult thing to do in any sport. The greatest hitters in the history of the world have failed seven times out of ten. It's super, super hard to hit a baseball. Now, it becomes much easier to hit a baseball if you know what the pitcher is going to throw. So if you're standing in the batting box and you think a fastball is coming, but a changeup's coming, what are you going to do? Ava, what are you going to do? You're going to be out on your front foot, and you're going to be way out in front of it, right? So Ava, you're, you're the pitcher. All right, you throw me a pitch. I think it's going to be a fastball. It's a changeup. I'm swinging. The bat's up here. Woo, and now the ball comes. Now let's flip it, and let's say, all right, Ava's going to throw a fastball, but I think it's a changeup, OK? So she pitches. There goes the ball, and then the swing, and I'm behind it. Pitching is all about deceiving the hitter. You want the hitter to think that something else is coming instead of the pitch that you're throwing. So what the 2017 Astros did was they devised a plan to steal the signs that the catcher who squats down uh, that gives the pitch signs to the pitcher, they had a camera on it, and they were stealing it, and then they had a trash can and a bat, and someone standing in the dugout would... One you know, one bang for a fastball. Fastball's coming. Now the hitter knows it's a fastball. Or a two for another pitch. So, how do you think the other teams feel after they found this out? Not happy. They are not happy. Uh, if you pay attention to baseball at all, it's hilarious right now. I mean, pets' heads are falling off. It's crazy. Alright, MLB found out. They did a massive investigation and they found out that the sign stealing um, was completely player-driven, okay, that's what they're calling it, player-driven, it was a player-driven scheme, Um, however, not a single player has been punished. So even though the players were the ones who came up with the idea, they executed the idea, and they were the ones who benefited from the idea, not a single player has been punished for stealing these signs, Instead, what the MLB did was they suspended the GM, that's the general manager, the one who does like the trades and contracts and stuff. They suspended the GM and the manager, that's the head coach, of the Astros for a year. They fined the team $5 million, which is like you and I losing $5. And then they took away several draft picks, which in baseball, I'm not saying they're not important, but they're not. it's not that big of a deal. In other words... They went to the Houston Astros, who had used this cheating to win the World Series, and they took their hand and they said, bad boys. All right? The Astros owner then fired the GM and manager, but over the past month he has made an absolute mess of things from a public relations standpoint, refusing to hold himself accountable or responsible for the actions of the players on the team he owns to make matters worse worse. For the Astros, almost all of MLB's major stars are criticizing both the MLB commissioner and the Astros. All the stars in baseball. Like Mike Trout, Juan Carlos Stanton, they've all come out and said this is a joke and this is terrible. What? Major League Baseball. MLB, yeah. Good question. (laughs) Major League Baseball. Sorry, I am like from a sports family. My dad has been in the sports world my whole life. I was born half in the stadium and half on the pew at church. All right. This is a picture of this spring training. What what is this a picture of? Alright, because the players were not punished, what do you think the opposing teams are doing? They're taking matters literally into their own hands. Now, if you have not been hit by a baseball before, let me be the first person to tell you, it is not fun getting hit by a baseball is not fun and that's my little league experience talking. These guys throw 90 to 100 miles an hour and it's like the wild west out there right now because what opposing teams have said is they're gonna start throwing at the players throughout the year and already Houston has set a record for spring training for the most times being hit in this short short amount of time because there is a human longing for justice. There is a human longing that is God-built deep inside of you for things to be made right. Amen? You long for justice? Is this fair? No, it's not fair. Everyone, every single parent has heard this phrase from their kid. It's not fair. He got to stay up later. She got five minutes extra on the tablet. It's not fair. Now, while that might be annoying as a parent, what, it's, what they're actually crying out for is a good thing. It's justice. Every human longs for justice, which is why the Astros, I feel bad for them. They're not really, but they're going to be hit a lot this year. God is a just God. In Psalm 25, this is Eugene Peterson's translation in the message, he says this, God is fair and he is just. He corrects the misdirected. He sends them in the right direction. God is both fair and just. In English, righteousness and justice are two different words linguistically. In both Hebrew and Greek, they share the same root. And so if you're talking about righteousness, you're also talking about justice. You cannot talk about one without the other because they're from the same root. We see that in this psalm. God is just and he sends them in the righteous direction, the right direction. So if you get upset when people start to talk about social justice, be very careful. Because justice and righteousness are related and in fact come from the same place. And God's character. Justice and righteousness. God is both fair and just... ...and he is righteous. So that's where we are. I already read that. Let's go to Jeremiah 31. How is this going to... Uh, hang with me. Alright, this is the text from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah was a priest. He was a prophet. At the end of the kingdom... ...right before they fell to whom? The kingdom of Judah. Who did they fall to? To who? Babylon! Jeremiah, what an incredibly difficult ministry that this man had. What's his nickname? Anybody know what Jeremiah's nickname is? The Weeping Prophet. How would you like to be known as that? Dave, the Weeping Financial Advisor. Josh, the Weeping Counselor. That might be true. I don't know. (laughs) DJ, the Weeping Pastor. Jeremiah's the weeping, the weeping prophet. His, his whole life was filled with pain. He's, he's projecting, prophesying from the day he starts his ministry, this is all going to fall, and it's going to fall to Babylon. And he was not popular with the people or with the rulers. In fact, at one point he was thrown into a well. How would you like to be thrown into a well and left for dead? At the end of his life, all of these prophecies that Jeremiah, Jeremiah gave, they came true. They came to fruition. Nebuchadnezzar overthrew the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, tore down the walls, and led all of the people who had any value whatsoever in society back to Babylon. Left the poorest of the poor and the riffraff, the criminals in, uh, in Jerusalem. And then you know what they did to Jeremiah? You remember? They wouldn't even let the poor man stay. They kidnapped him and took him to Egypt. <laughs> This is the life that Jeremiah lived. And he spent his entire ministry prophesying because the people had failed to live up to the Mosaic Covenant given to them on Mount Sinai. Because they had not held up their end of the covenant, the kingdom would fall. But there's this one glimmer that breaks through all of this pain and all of this darkness. There's this glimmer that then influences so dramatically how the New Testament writers will see the ministry and life of Jesus. And it comes to us in Jeremiah 31, where Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, there goes my job security, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See what he says here that this is not going to be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant is he talking about there? What covenant? The Mosaic covenant. The, the, the Ten Commandments. The, all, all of that stuff that God gave them at Mount Sinai, the new covenant, he said, is not going to be like that one. This is uh, from Deuteronomy 30 at the end of Moses' life when he retells the law for the second time. Right before he dies, right before the people of Israel are going to enter the land, he says, speaking of this covenant that God has just described, he says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. So Jeremiah is referring back to this covenant, and his whole ministry has been to point out, because we have not been faithful to the covenant, because we have not obeyed God, this is why God is punishing us. This is why we are being led into captivity. This is why the temple itself will be overthrown and destroyed. But God says, I'm going to do something new. Not like the previous covenant. That covenant was dependent on the humans following through with their end of the deal. Obeying the commandments. And were they able to do that? Are you able to do that? Look what the Lord says. Verse 33, for this covenant I will make with the house of the Lord, declares the Lord. I will put the law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. There's a new thing that the Lord promises He's going to do, and it is very, very dependent on what He is going to do. In Hebrews 9 This is where the writer of Hebrews refers to the new covenant. And I need to move quickly here, so track with me. This is what he says. Now even the first covenant, which covenant is he talking about? Mosaic covenant with the tabernacle. For even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. In which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And here's the most relatable thing. Um, that I've ever read in scriptures of these things. We cannot now speak in detail. Because we've got to keep moving. These preparations having thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section. That's the holy place performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes. And he but once a year. And not without taking blood. Which he offers for himself. And for the unintentional sins of the people. What is he talking about here? What day is this? The day of atonement. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much More, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. He is the mediator of a new covenant. What should every student of the Hebrew scriptures be immediately thinking of when they read this phrase by the writer of Hebrews? what passage we just read it jeremiah 31 every student of the scriptures this is a big obnoxious neon sign a uh, neon sign flashing over jeremiah 31 because jeremiah 31 is the place where it talks about the new covenant therefore he who who says that he's going to establish the new covenant we just said this. I just counted out the eyes. God, therefore he. So what's the implication about Jesus? He's God, and he's the one establishing the new covenant. Mediator is a good translation of this word. What this is saying is that Jesus stands in the gap between that, the old, which, which we could not uphold, and God himself, and he brings into existence through his own flesh Something new. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them for the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. And like I said earlier, I don't have time to talk about all of this. I want to keep moving because I want to get to this. How is this justice? The new... If I back up just for one second, this new covenant, how is it established? Through what? Through death. Through the death of who? Jesus. Remember the Houston Astros and how mad we were all at them? I made you mad at them, right? How mad we were all at them a few minutes ago? Because it's not fair? How is this fair? This is the passage we looked at last week that Josh led us in Isaiah 53. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighted him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God. A punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped So we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. How is this fair? How is this justice? It's real easy to look at other people when they offend us and desire the punishment of God to fall on them. it's a real easy place for us to get in. I think Paul is reflecting on this exact thing when he writes in Romans 5, this well-known passage that I promise you you've heard before. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person though for someone though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person Who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us. How? By sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his Son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. I'm reading a grief observed by C.S. Lewis where he reflects on the death of his wife. And I was reading this yesterday afternoon um, in light of, you know, I was thinking about these things for the sermon and I read this and it just stood out. He says... What do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because he is good? Have they never been to a dentist? (laughs) Which is good for us, but an awful experience. Yet, and now he's reflecting on his own bitterness and sadness and, and the reflection of losing his wife. He says, yet this is unendurable. And then one babbles, if only I could bear it, or the worst of it, or any of it instead of her. In other words, he's saying... Like all of us have said, when we have a loved one who's suffering, I wish I could just take it on myself for them. But one can't tell how serious that bid is, for nothing is staked on it. If it suddenly became a possibility, then, for the first time, we should discover how seriously we actually meant it. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to actually be in that. But is it ever allowed? Now listen to what he says. It was allowed to one. To vicariously take the suffering, injustice and pain upon himself. It was allowed to one. We are told, and I find, I can now believe again, that he has done vicariously whatever can be so done. He replies to our babble, you cannot and you dare not. I could and I dared. I thought that was an incredibly profound reflection upon this. How is this justice that Jesus has taken all of this upon himself? When we think covenant, I think we tend to think a list of rules or laws. But that's not what covenant is. Covenant at its core is relationship. And the covenant, the new covenant, is not a list of rules or regulations. What it is, is the person of Christ. The new covenant is... Is the person of Christ. To be in the New Covenant is to be in and under and with Christ. To be in Christ is to be under the authority and rulership of Christ. It is also to be in agreement with the commandments of His covenant. Keep that phrase in mind. To be in the New Covenant is to be in agreement with the commandments of the covenant. In Christ, we too become the new covenant. You're living in it, and as your story embodies Christ, and He embodies Himself through you, you become part of the new covenant. Our story is His story. His story is our story. Under the lordship and authority of Jesus, we are the new covenant people of God. What did Jesus say to His disciples after He washed their feet in John 13? This is what he says. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Which again leads us to the question of fairness. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, we are to love, catch me on this, we are to love our friends and hate our enemies, right? Now, he said, you've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and do what for them? Yeah. Pray for them. Pray for them. Love your enemies and pray for them. This is the new commandment. This is the new covenant. And it has nothing to do with, we can't, I can't love them because they deserve punishment. I can't love them because... They need to get hit in the head with a fastball. In the same way that you do not deserve, and I do not deserve, the unbelievable love of God poured out to us through Jesus Christ. How is that fair? It's not. In the best possible way, God restoring and redeeming me is not fair. I did nothing. It was while I was still a sinner that Christ died for me. And the same for you. Says in John 15, greater love has no man than this, than that what? He laid down his life for his friends. And I have called you friends. If you do what I command you. We are to love in the same way that he loves. And that means being really unfair towards people. It means being really, really unfair towards people. That's what it means to love like Jesus. Jesus. And when they harm us and hurt us and speak all kinds of inappropriate things about us, to love them as God has loved us. Would you reflect on that a minute? Tim, you can come up if you're ready. We're going to close with singing There is a Redeemer, which just so perfectly encaptures, encapsulates all this uh, teaching. So take a minute and reflect on this, that it is unfair how much God has loved you. Go ahead and speak that to him in your heart and your soul. It's really, really unfair how much love you've poured out to me, how much forgiveness you've poured out to me, how much grace you've poured out to me. And it is so easy for me to sit in a place of judgment and say, thank God I'm not like that person who's sleeping around. Thank God I'm not like that person who's, who's drinking too much. Thank God I'm not like that person who spends too much. Thank God I'm not like that person... Thank God I'm not. No. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was upon the Lamb of God that God placed the punishment that we so rightly deserved. It's not fair how much you love us, God, or how good you are to us. It's not fair that Jesus went into the garden and sweated drops of blood instead of me. It's not fair that he was stretched across a tree. It's not fair that his throne was a cross, that he was lifted up to die. It's not fair that his crown was a crown of thorns, though he was the maker of the universe. It's not fair that it was his body broken and his blood poured out. It's not fair that he was mocked and reviled. It says in the great hymn, Lifted up was he to die. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. There is a Redeemer. And it's unfair how you've redeemed us with your blood. It's so good and it's so gracious and we receive it with joy. So let's stand and sing about our Redeemer Jesus. younger, a little kid, about three years old, three or four years old, I was home with my mom one day and there was a bowl, this is in St. Louis, Missouri, and there was a bowl of uh, candy on our dining room table that had hard candies in it with the wrappers on it, the like uh, cinnamon ones, like red hot, Uh, but they were the hard candies like that. And so I asked my mom if I could have one, and it was in the morning, and she said, no, not, not right now, maybe later. And then she got in the shower and I thought to myself, hmm, this is an opportune moment for me to help myself to a hard candy. So my mom was in the shower. I was by myself, and I went and I got one of them. And I have uh, choked one time in my life. One time in my life, I've choked. And it was that morning when I popped that candy in. <laughs> and I, it got lodged in my throat, and I couldn't breathe. And I ran to the bathroom door, and I was pounding on it. And my mom... Could tell something was wrong and jumped out of the shower and wrapped a towel around herself and came out and slapped my back and I coughed it up. It's <laughs> the so one time I choked. It was when I lied to my mom and I disobeyed. I kept thinking about that story this week. I haven't thought about that in a long time. I was thinking about fairness and what's fair and what's not fair and how been out of shape I get about things being fair and not fair. And I I was thinking, I think that's why the Lord was reminding me of that story, just like his incredible grace. When we survive a car accident, when we, when our mom jumps out of the shower and keeps us from choking on a piece of candy that we shouldn't have been eating, when, uh, when we wake up with breath in our lungs, when we sense the love of a family member, when we forgive because we've been forgiven, it's not fair, and that's okay. Because God has a different economy. And justice belongs to the Lord. Justice belongs to the Lord. So may we be a people that flow in the economy of God and the justice of God. So be blessed. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you. May you receive The undeserved, overflowing, beautiful love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ today. And may you reciprocate in turn, both back to God in love, but then to your neighbor and all the people you meet this week. May you be like a giant free vending machine that's been broken, and everyone who touches you gets a free soda pop because you're just flowing with the grace and love of God. And whether or not the person deserves it, they receive the. The love of God because you've been loved when you didn't deserve it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. Go with God. Amen.